0: Hello Grill Americans and welcome to the Grill America Podcast. I'm your host Tim Beecher and today we have Alex Drummond on the show. Alex is an educator. He has a background in mathematics and finance, and we speak about everything from education to religion and the intersection of the two, how they're impacting our world, and how we can move forward in a more coherent and compassionate way. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. We're on air, and welcome, Alex, to the show. Today we have Alex Drummond. I'm really excited to have you on. So Alex and I are actually housemates. He's my neighbor and become a really good friend. We've had all sorts of really interesting conversations about religion and education, and you know, I think Alex is an extremely nuanced thinker, so I was excited to have you on the show. So welcome. Yeah, thanks for
1: having me, Tim. I'm excited to be here.
0: Yeah. Um, So... I was hoping that you could just start by giving us a little bit of background. I know you know you teach, you um, are an educator in the areas of entrepreneurship, as well as some other things, I believe. So I'd like to get a little bit more background on that, and then maybe just some of your personal background, and we can dig in from there.
1: Yeah, I guess I'll start with personal, and that'll kind of maybe lead to where I'm at. Uh, so I grew up in the Midwest, and I know you named religion and education as things, so I'll talk about those. Grew up in uh, like a Christian uh, fundamentalist home, and uh, that was a great experience for growing up. Went to college in Indiana, where I grew up. Um, moved out to Colorado in my mid-20s uh, for like a career change uh, to education, so okay. I went to school at DU. And then um, I've been, I'm finishing my seventh year. Uh, right now, in of, at a char- of, teaching. Mm-hmm. At, in t- of teaching at a charter school in Denver public schools called the Denver School for Science and Technology. Okay, um, I taught math there for a while, and now I teach entrepreneurship and personal finance.
0: Awesome. So, I want to understand what you mean by fundamentalist when you say uh, fundamentalist households, because I think that could mean a lot of different things. Is there, I mean, I'm I'm sure there's a definition for that, but what do you think of when you think of fundamentalist?
1: Yeah, I think, I think of in fundamentalist can come up in a lot of different like philosophical contexts. And I think within education, um, and religion, religion specifically, I, I tend to think that fundamentalists, um, and this is my experience and what I've studied of it, um, Fundamentalism, fundamentalism believes that there are, you know, right views of looking at life and the world. And from those axiomatic um, beliefs, then you can build a structure and a coherent worldview on top of it. And so I think fundamentalism oftentimes offers like a strict and rigid system um, of beliefs that can actually create a lot of human flourishing.
0: Mm.
1: However, when one gets Outside of that construct, I think it becomes really challenging uh, for fundamentalism to hold something in its outside of its box, if you will.
0: And so, meaning like if you're interacting with the outside world or something like that, or a world that isn't like comprised of people that have that same belief system. Or what do you mean exactly by the outside yeah, world?
1: Yeah, I think there's, I think there are degrees of that, right? So the outside world could be. Um, like, I know you shared about your upbringing and experience with, with uh, religious, with Christianity, and your and your family having certain beliefs about, or certain thoughts or opinions or feelings about, you know, what was being taught in your school, or the way it was being taught. Like, for example, when I took ninth grade biology, um, my mom grew up going to a Christian school, and so she had some thoughts about us, like, teaching biology. I don't think, the, like, teaching evolution in biology. So she didn't have language. Um, And this is where I think, like when I think about fundamentalism, specifically within Christianity, I think there's a lot of degrees and a lot of flavors of it within it. And so I think mine was the, the specific flavor that I grew up in was a little bit more free than some of them. And so because of that, it wasn't as antagonistic to those systems in a very explicit, I need to deconstruct and fight this thing at every turn. It was more of like a posture of, we don't like this, but it's like not terrible for our kids. And I don't really know how to engage with it.
0: Mm. So,
1: um, so, so to go back to your question of what does it mean? Like anything outside of the system, I think there are are certainly degrees of things that are within or outside of the system. And I think if you like picture a three-dimensional scaffolding and like the, the, the soil, you know, the closer you get to questioning the, those constructs that are at the foundation, that the the more antagonistic it comes, it, fundamentalism can become to something just outside of its system. Okay. Whereas if you're up at like a higher belief, or not even a higher belief, but a farther from the, the cornerstone, if you will, um, the farther you are from that cornerstone, the more like freedom there is to engage with those ideas. So if you were to think about the literal resurrection of... Jesus, questioning that would be an axiomatic thing. And so there's like no tolerance for that. There's Mm. no entertaining of like thoughts or beliefs or doubts around those sorts of things. Versus if you live in a a fundamentalist culture and you want to wear jeans, there's maybe a little bit of room for that. Or you're a girl and you want to wear pants, or you want to have spaghetti straps. I don't know why I'm talking about all these things that affect women. I have three sisters. Maybe that's why <laughs> <Great> fundamentalism has <laughs> certain things towards women as well.
0: So sure. does that answer your question? Yeah, no, I think it does. I mean, I- I have a definition that I think of in my mind when I think of fundamentalism, it's basically just like the strictest interpretation of a thing, uh, whatever that happens to be, right? Like, uh, you know, I think people think of like fundamentalist uh, Muslims as being like the strictest, you know, Muslim sects or, you know, the Taliban, it would be like a fundamentalist sect of Islam. Um, and so, I mean, I think there's sort of, Baggage around that terminology, but at its root, fundamentalism, I guess, is sort of saying, "Oh, we we believe in the fundamental basis of a thing, and not some extrapolation of it, um, where some other group might have air quotes more modern interpretation of a thing that has all these different layers that aren't necessarily what the basal thing was uh, pre all that." Additional interpretation, right? And so to me, that's what fundamentalism kind of is at its root in anything. Uh, would you interpret it in that way?
1: Yeah, 100%. Like uh, another, like I was forming a definition and you didn't ask the question, but in my head, I was going to say something very similar where it's like a very literal and inflexible interpretation of something. Um, and it also doesn't like that to be, you know, bent or th- doesn't like to be recodified in any sort of a way. Um, yeah, and so fundamentals, you know, can can just be like the base points, right? In education, if we were to think about the fundamentals, like what are the fundamentals of, of good learning and good teaching, right? Like, so I do agree with you when you say that there sometimes is a, is a bit of a negative connotation when that may not always necessarily be the case.
0: So not necessarily, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I would like to talk about why you think that there's a lot of human flourishing that can come out of that, because I think the typical interpretation, and admittedly even my own, is like fundamentalism is restrictive. It doesn't really allow for exploration of human thought and science or whatever, regardless of whether it's Christianity or it's Islam or it's some other thing. It's kind of inflexible and therefore not really a lot of room for growth or learning or tolerance or things of that nature. But uh, I would love to hear why you think that that allows room for human flourishing because I think that's a not common perspective in our world today.
1: Yeah, I think for for my and like let me preface this by saying one of my axiomatic beliefs is that in everything and every system and every person there is light and shadow in everything. Sure. And so I think In this, I'm I'm gonna. This is not something I've necessarily talked about a whole lot, like because a lot of my own personal development has come from dealing with all the shadow stuff of that. So this is a very interesting question to me because I haven't really thought about it in that way. But um, I think religion and education, there's they're good proxies for each other because in a lot of ways, like if you think about good teaching, we know that like a lot of learning happens when there's a sense of freedom, but also we need some rules and we need structure and scaffolding for that freedom to be able to flourish and for things to be able to grow properly. Sure. And so when I think, if I apply, you know, that line of thinking to religion, I do think fundamental structures tend to, they obviously err very much on the structure side of things, but structure is good. Structure gives people a sense of identity, right? It's like, I'm a part of a group. This is who we are. And it gives people a sense of purpose. It gives them a sense of confidence. It gives them a sense of identity, which can be a really, really healthy way to flourish. Like think about like if, if I was to, if we were to, you know, if someone was to raise a child and they never told the child, no, the child had no boundaries, had no rules, right? The, the, if the, the child got to do whatever they want, whenever they want to, they wouldn't have a, a sense of how to interface with the rest of the world because they wouldn't know that there are sometimes yeses, there are sometimes noes. There is a culture or a way of doing things um, in a certain setting, and I think right, you'd be spoiled brat. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. That's a <laughs> pretty much yeah. So I think that while erring probably f- too far one sided, I, I do think it's important to acknowledge that there that there are good things that come from. There are, there can be some good things that come from that. For example, for myself, I think like I can probably mostly only speak to myself. But um, growing up in like a fundamental religious structure, like there was a way that we did things. Family was like at the center of the most important things that we did, mm-hmm. and so like that's that's generally a good thing, right? Like when whenever I would need help or need to talk to someone or just needed anything, I could not only go to my immediate family. I could go to any of my extended family. And I knew that also like within my religious community, that there were people that loved me and supported me, they were beyond just my parents and maybe my siblings. Sure. And I think that was a really, really healthy thing that I felt like it created the, Oh, Hey Alex, the world is actually for you. Mm. The world is not against you. And that's a really, really healthy worldview because it's a form especially an important at a very young age. Um, And so I think, that was, that was really healthy for me. And now, does that have to be fundamentalism? No. Parents can be wonderful parents and and create a culture of all of those things in a family with and without fundamentalist religious structures. But I do think, like, if we were to look at the big data, fundamentalist religious structures do a really good job of forming that in young people, in, and, and like, very young, like, zero to five. Sure.
0: Well, I mean, it's interesting because I think, you know, as we become less religious in modern society in general there there are these things lost if, that were kind of previously encapsulated within religion it's like cultural technology is the way that i think of it where you have certain structures or ways of teaching people or ways of behaving that are just beneficial. And maybe there isn't like a lot of science behind why it works, but it was kind of baked into religion because that's how we passed on belief systems and structures of behavior and all that different sort of thing. And as we become more scientific and a little bit more aversion oriented towards religion or anything fundamentalist in nature, uh, we kind of lose a lot of these things that you're talking about, right? Like the scaffolding for, you know, I, the world is here for me or I have community and people care about me or love is a fundamental thing that I should count on in the world or, or whatever the the base thing is that is just good for human development and good for the human psyche gets kind of, you know, lost as well. And so it, it's interesting to, to hear about that structural piece. So, okay. So I think we've got a a baseline understanding of kind of how you grew up in that religious context. And so you became interested in education at some point in time, Uh, I assume probably while you were in school or, or something along those lines. Yeah. Like, you know, everybody has
1: that story of like a teacher that, you know, made a positive impact on them. And so, you know, when you are 16 and 17 and you're thinking about hey, who do I know that does what? And usually we need to know somebody who does something to be able to see ourselves as something so we have some familiarity with it. Um, And so teaching was one of those things that was like, I think this could make a really positive impact on the world. It made a positive impact on me. I actually saw some friends fall through the cracks um, and die at a young age or maybe not graduate high school and their futures are totally different. And they were great kids, super smart, great, wonderful people growing up. So that was like kind of a thing in in my, in my back pocket, you know, when I was, you know, in high school before then. And so I didn't train to become a teacher till I was 26 years old, uh, when I moved to Denver. And so there's a big so, gap in there, right?
0: Yeah. You went to school for something else, I assume. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I studied finance and math, mm-hmm. um, which actually are basically what I've taught math and business, right? So transitioning to education was kind of like, a in a way it was like a kind of a coming out of the fundamentalist system and wanting to like leave that. And so like, it's, <laughs> I know you were just trying to bridge the gap and get away from that. And like, I needed to get out of that system to find out who I was. And so that was one of the things that was maybe in me that I wanted to explore more in a new way. I wanted to explore different facets of myself. Mm. So I would built a career in finance, um, was, was moving up and I was like, Hey, I'm 26. Is this the life I want when I'm 36? I don't know. I know all of this, like, non career stuff is not what I want right now. I need to exit that. And my, you know, how jobs can sometimes, I, I like what I do, but I just like need to do it with some new people because, like, yeah. <laughs> this group. So I was like, I need a new job. Well, now seems like a great time to, you know, try a new career. You're young, you can afford a standard living change versus if you, you know, have kids and a house and a family and all, all those things that are obligations and a sense of, that are, are wonderful things that bring a sense of duty. So I was like, the timing is really good for me to try this thing. And if I don't like it after a year or two and I just hate it, then I can just like leave it and like pick back up where I left off in the corporate world. Mm. Um, so, I was, so I moved out here. Uh, I was looking for a number of uh, factors in a program. I really wanted a really, a very specific program. And I wanted it to be a one-year program. I wanted it to be a master's. I wanted to do a full year of student teaching. And I wanted there to be um, like a culturally competent sort of a lens for working with diverse populations. And mm-hmm. so I made that list and I looked at the 15 cities that I want to live at in the U.S. And I checked all their major universities within 20 miles to see what programs there were. And then I ranked my programs, and then I applied to all of them. And the one here in Denver, the University of Denver, was my number one. So I did that, got accepted, moved out here, did that, Like got some really good training, learned about this really cool charter network that was doing some revolutionary work um, in like reversing some achievement gaps in public education. Like 100% of the college graduates had been accepted to four-year institutions, and they were just pulling from the general uh, – demographic populations of Denver um which were are not the results that our traditional education system has and I was like that's really cool mm. I want to go and be a part of that and I, I they had a reputation for really investing and in growing their teachers um and they're a little bit hands on in how they want you to do things there's less curricular freedom than there are a lot of other places but I was like hey that's a that could be a really great place to start a career and like grow a lot really fast Um, and get really good. Cause I knew like in education, if you serve in urban settings with diverse populations, low income title one settings, like teachers don't make it five years. And I was like, if I'm going to last in teaching, I want to know I did everything that I could do to, to make it through that and to be like the best I could for the people that I was serving every day. And so that just seemed like the great place to like start off that career. Um, and it's been a great place. I'm, I'm still at the same school seven years later. I can't be, like the only place I've ever stayed seven years of my life was like my mom's attic when I was growing up. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and,
0: and what's the name of this school? Just to plug it.
1: Uh, the Denver school of science and technology. It's a charter network. Um, and I teach at the green Valley ranch campus.
0: Okay, cool. So what do they do differently? Why are they achieving at such a higher rate than everyone else?
1: That's a great question. Um, so I think there are three things that really they do a little bit differently. One is like the school model. It's a small school model. So think about like I went to a comprehensive high school where it's like you have all the choirs, all the bands, all the music things, every sport. My high school was like the 25th ranked sports high school in the country like when I was like a junior. Megan's was like the 10th. I know y'all are a little bit better than us. <laughs> but
0: uh in so, the end of competition
1: over here. <laughs> so yeah, we had we had four thousand five hundred students mm-hmm. in my high school. The school I work at is a the school model is five hundred fifty kids. And so a uh, normal high school, a traditional high school, you it's a credit base. So you just like take your credits. Most kids finish within four years. There's kind of a general framework about how you do it. You take like algebra one, your freshman year, geometry, your second year, et cetera, right? Same similar right. track for English. Similar ish track for science, although not in those core classes. There's a little bit more curricular freedom to take, you know, geology or physics, or maybe you don't even have to take physics if you take biology and chemistry. So the small school model, plus we have cohorts. So you have to pass and get credit for every class your freshman year in order to become a sophomore. Mm. So that model allows us to have. Our 12 or 13 ninth grade teachers meet every week, look at every kid's grades, notice that, hey, this kid has not been doing great in my class this week. His grade went down 12%. And he also did that in your class too.
0: Hmm. Maybe there's some fundamental thing going on at home or there's some fundamental issue that we need to address here. Exactly. So- it's really hard. It's impossible for a kid to fall through the cracks for
1: better or for worse. So that leads to us kind of like being in their business, asking them questions, really supporting them at a really, really high level. And a lot of kids who graduate tend to use that word family. Mm. Um, and oftentimes they struggle not having all of that structure um, once they graduate high school that's and true. all of those supports. So I think that's number one. Um, number two uh, just the, the, the kind of people that the organization targets to hire is they hire for character more than they hire for skills. They're like if we, if we get the, if we get good people, we can train them to be good teachers, and they that's a fundamental belief that they have, and they've knocked the hiring out of the park when it comes to character. Mm. Um, and so like it's some of the best people. Like if I leave this organization, I will never work. I'm sure I'll work for great organizations, but I will never work for organizations that are full of like such good people who really only care about doing what's the intrinsically right thing to do. There's like no ulterior motives. And so that's that's a really fun place to work. And when there's like a lot of people moving in that same direction, there can be a lot of momentum. And then I think the third thing um, that makes it really unique is like their curricular approach, right? So the name, it sounds like, it is what it sounds like, Denver School of Science and Technology. Every kid has laptops. Well, every school has laptops now, but we've had laptops every student for this is the 17th year. So back in, you know, 20, 2004. Yeah, like 17 then. years ago, that was not the norm by any means. So like, I can't tell you the last time I gave a paper piece of homework to students. It's Interesting. Been, it's been a long time. So we all the curriculums online, on their computers, Um, The teachers develop it. And also students are required to take four years of math through pre-calculus. So we like support every student to be able to achieve a lot of rigor and a lot of skills in math, which helps them for like their college readiness. Mm. Um, They are required to have five and two thirds, two thirds years of science in order to graduate three years of foreign language. So that's kind of like a step above um, for the curricular requirements. They obviously meet all the credit requirements that any traditional high school would meet. Sure. Um, there's the downside of that, right. Is there's a little bit less freedom for electives and things like that, but that's like kind of been a growth edge. And that's where like my courses come in, you know, one of the courses I teach right now is a brand new course at our school, financial, financial literacy is a brand new course, like the personal finance course. Okay. Um, and
0: you also teach entrepreneurship, correct?
1: I do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's been, that's been an elective for every graduating class that we've had.
0: Awesome. I mean, those are things, I mean, I, I don't know what the standard is in high schools now. I went to a very small high school in rural Colorado and <clears throat> we had very few options when it came to extra stuff. And so entrepreneurship would not have been in the zeitgeist or <laughs> in the option set or anything that's like a little bit more specialized than any character. But so is that normal for larger high schools nowadays to have things like entrepreneurship available? or is that something that's kind of just you know in your guys's specialty school set?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of schools have like business courses or maybe a marketing course or um, you know like hey, let's like learn how to start a business kind of like in a textbook sort of a way. I think what we have is is very unique. We're, we are the only um, network of schools really in the country that has the thing that we offer. Um, and so it's, it's, we've pulled from like the protocols and the programs, um, of the best startup accelerators in the world and the best business schools. Um, and so like, that's the framework for what we do for high school seniors. That's awesome. Um, It's, it's really fun. And so like to go back to kind of the curricular approach, the, the why kind of behind how the, the course was developed is, you know, a lot of the metrics that we say, hey, our schools are failing or like all these standardized tests, right? And, right? and rightfully so. Standardized testing is important and our school like does a really good job of preparing for students to do that. Like I was incentivized as a teacher, half the way I was graded was based off of how my students did on tests. Mm. 25% of the total way I was graded was just off the SAT and their growth alone. The other 25 was like the end of their, the end of the school year exam. So that's really good and you can especially like think about math like if you need to learn how to factor polynomials things like of that nature you just need a lot of practice right, right. you need like a lot of strategies a lot of reps um it, it's like it's like training a muscle it's like learning a, a, a new skill in sports you just have to have reps 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 like getting your 10,000 hours so so that's when you think about that if I'm a teacher and I'm teaching you how to factor a polynomial I already know what the answer is right I just have to teach you all the steps to get there. You have to memorize the steps. You have to apply them maybe in a few different nuanced ways. And that's a really good way for creating like some baseline skills. The problem that we were seeing is that in my school is the second campus that we've had. The problem that we were seeing is that students had all these skills and they got to college and there was no scaffolding. There's you're solving more novel problems. Students didn't have the skills to, to like actually problem solve everyday real world problems. Sure. And so we were thinking, how can we take this really strong foundation and build something on it that's actually going to help students long in the long term? Because interestingly enough, even though students were getting into college, they were persisting and graduating at lower rates than their peers. Oh fascinating. Yeah. So it was like kind of this inverse thing. So it's like, okay, the thing we're doing is like getting them to point A, but not to point not through there to point B.
0: And so our it, course was it kind of a more of a memorization and rote learning approach versus a sort of base knowledge of the systems that construct that problem solving tool that you're going with. I asked that question because I feel like my mathematics education was very much that way early on and uh, well I mean at least in a high school, right? It was like, "Oh, learn these steps, but not necessarily you know, it's like take it something super basic like the Pythagorean theorem. There's a lot of elegance to that theorem, and yet I didn't really think about that until I was like, you know, deep into much higher level mathematics. And I was like, oh, this is you know, this is actually really kind of clever. Just relationship of a rectangle versus a triangle, and and thinking about the fundamentals of where that the derivative of that theorem comes from. And so I felt like I almost had to relearn the fundamentals in more of a robust way when I was studying higher, higher level math in order to be able to achieve higher level mathematics. And so just curious if that was your guys' experience where it was like, oh, we're teaching them how to execute problems. We're not necessarily teaching them how to think about math at like the base level. Just curious. Yeah, I would I would agree with that.
1: And and to a certain degree I think that's to a certain degree I think that's very appropriate, right? I think we probably could do a better job of loosening the reins and some of that. But like think about like if you're I'm not an engineer, but any of like your sophomore or junior level engineering courses, in order to like be able to solve any of the problems that you have there, you have to have really competent skills and conceptual understanding of like all those mathematical things. So I do think to a certain point like, you know, you need to have a strong bicep right? Or a strong deltoid or trapezius to be able to like be a rock climber. Sure. So like math in a way as is, is the language of science. So I think there's an appropriateness there, but to build off your idea, y- yes, that's what we were seeing. We needed more like ambiguity in our learning. And so business has be- entrepreneurship has become the vehicle for that. But before we say, Hey, what's a problem you see in the world? Let's build a business solution to go solve it. We need to take kids from you're used to to use your language, the more the rote memorization and we need to build skills to get them to where they feel confident in themselves to do that. Cause if we just said, Hey, go do this. They like, well, they'll, they'll, fl- they'll like drown.
0: Right. Right. I don't have a starting point or any tools to be able to approach this problem. Yeah. Which makes sense. I mean, There, there always does seem to be an interplay between, you know, just like, Hey, learn how to do this base skill that sort of creates a scaffolding for being able to think in higher level ways and also teaching them how to think about the fundamentals. I mean, when I, I, it's funny because there's math courses that are just around number theory and you don't need number theory to be able to count or to use numbers in a base kind of way. However, if you really want to go to the next level in mathematics, you have to understand number theory. And it's like going back and dissecting the fundamentals to the nth degree. So there is a, some interesting interplay there with any type of learning, I think. Mm-hmm. I'd
1: agree with that. And I think one of the things that I think is most cool about our program is like there's three segments. And the third one is when we really get to that entrepreneurial, hey, what's a problem that we see? Let's How do we build a, some solution to solve it? But the cool thing about how we get there is, is probably some of the most fun that I have because um, I'm a little bit more active in those projects, is we do consulting projects for local businesses, startups, the government, like school systems. We do all so it's my job to like go source someone who has a problem that I think our students might be able to solve. Very and cool. I guide them I get to guide them through that process. And so it's really fun seeing them do we iterate, we do one we do two of those. So it's fun seeing them iterate on the second one and be like, oh, yeah, we've done this process before. We like have some problem solving skills. And then we kind of, at the end of the year, get to kind of unleash them to the to the things that they're really really passionate about. Um, mm. And so, we're actually starting that tomorrow in class. So I'm really excited about that. We just wrapped up our last project um, last week. So that's uh, exciting. Yeah, it's, a, it's it's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, it's, that's cool. So it sounds like you're sort of taking them through that process. You're building that base scaffolding for like this is how you think about it problem in business, this is how you solve a problem in business, do it a couple of times, get some reps and then now set you free to solve a higher level problem that you have to be more creative and use those tools in novel ways. which I wonder if that is where we're kind of lacking just in the in general in education, where we give people the kind of infrastructure of the base stuff. It's like, oh, here's how you do X, Y, or z. Yeah, here's the procedure and we just leave it at that because it seems like a lot of people have a hard time kind of extrapolating into the next level of thought outside of what they were taught just in it's like oh here's the box kind of like you we were talking about with fundamentalism it's like oh here's the box and if you're trying to go outside of that that's where you kind of run into problems inside the box you're maybe highly skilled but would, would you agree with that, just with education on the whole? Because it seems like in the United States, we're kind of lacking something in education. And I'm curious what you might think that is, even if it's not what I just proposed there.
1: Yeah, I think we're... I mean, education in this country is very... It's, it's more complex, the system and all the variables. It's much more complex than any culture in human history. The amount of inequality we have in our society, the systemic structures that have led to some of that. The fact that we have that we like guarantee public education from age five through age 18 is, is really, is really unique. And so I think there's no silver bullet to any of those things. Right. And on one side, like we have groups of schools who probably the next step in their evolution and their growth is to actually have more of that rote memorization that my school is really, really good at. Right. That's not the best term rote memorization, but it like kind of sums it up. Sure. Um, So there are plenty of schools where that would be a great next step for them, right? And for our school and for many schools, that would be a step backwards to continue building in that sort of a way. And so I I do think that having more problem-based learning where there are multiple right answers and there's multiple paths to each of those right answers, I think that is what, what we need more of in our educational system. And so when I saw an opportunity to be able to do that in my school, I said, yes, I want to do that. I think that's really, really valuable for students. And because, because I think there's, I think there's three or four things that we need that students are not getting. Number one, I think we need to be giving students and young people opportunities to learn how to learn. Mm. right like you're starting a podcast you're learning how to how to do mixing you're learning how to do editing you're learning how to do marketing you're learning how to promote you probably have some background knowledge in many of those but it's not like you had a teacher sitting up in front of you and saying now the mixer move the gain up and or anything
0: like that right no you just right? have to probe into it and try things and fail and do things something different <laughs> you you need to be able to fail right and so you have done a lot of that in your life
1: in many different ways so you're able to more freely and easily apply that you don't when you have when you experience failure, that's not like an existential thing for you. You're just like, oh, I just need to like try something else and figure it out. Like, may, let me adapt and adjust and try something new. Yeah. So I think that's one opportunity um, is for students to learn how to learn. I, I think another is solving problems, which we which we alluded to. I think a third thing is learning to work in teams. Too much of our schooling is individual based, mm. and when you leave school, you are always working on teams of people, right? And then I think the last thing is communication skills and emotional intelligence. Mm. Um, I think they're huge, and I think we do three of those really well, and I think we dabble in the learning how to learn. And I think it's I think it's really powerful. I am in touch with students who I've taught two, three, four, five years ago, and they've had these kinds of experiences, and they still refer back to them as being formative. And like, oh, I like remember that project, I now see what you were doing. I really appreciate that. I didn't even get the learning until I was a junior in college. Like that's, that's 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 pretty cool stuff. Yeah. (laughs) So I, I think we, I think we need more of that. Right. And I'm not sure what the perfect answer is because you also need to be able to factor. Right. As long as like the SAT is a gatekeeper, you know, um, for college access kids are going to, especially folks from marginalized populations, especially folks who like, I had two parents who like, they read to me every night when I was growing up, right? If a kid doesn't have that, they still deserve the opportunity to go to college. Right. And so I think that there are, there are many, you know, prongs, but those are the, those are like the four things that I'm really, really passionate about. And it's, it's so much fun. It, the classroom looks very different. Like a lot of my work happens outside of the classroom. Like if you were to come into my classroom tomorrow, well, tomorrow will be different because we're like actually doing some exercises to like, you know, develop business ideas. And like, how do we think like an entrepreneur and see opportunities for business? Like you're walking through the grocery store. How many business opportunities can we like identify? We like do lots of exercises around stuff like that. But on a normal day, if you were to walk in, you would think I was probably the laziest teacher in the school (laughs) because I'll go around. I check in with all the groups. They have like rubrics and they have you know checkpoints and they have a process they're supposed to go through. So we do a lot of project management. And so like if at a certain point if they're just chugging along on their work, I don't have anything to do. I'm just going to check Facebook. And then that night I'm going to like read through all their work and give them feedback and watch their video if they gave presentations mm. and stuff like that. So it's it's a very it's more like less teacher at the front and students like. A traditional way of doing education is like, I I do, the teacher, I do, and then we do, and then you do. Um, it's very much the inverse of that. You are going to do things first, and then we all talk about them, and then I highlight what was the best practice among those. And so, it just, it's, I'm a more of a facilitator and a coach than I am like the arbiter of all the knowledge. It's like I'm a thought partner um, alongside them. And so... Honestly, that's like a lot more fun than like telling people what to do all day. Um, And so it's, I, I really enjoy it a lot.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, as you were talking, I was thinking back on some of my most formative courses in engineering school. And one of the courses that I was thinking of is this class that I took. It was a programming class, a C programming. And the teacher basically didn't teach. He was just, here's the problem that can be solved in roughly some categorical way that looks like this-ish. I haven't taught you any of those base tools. I haven't taught you anything about this, but here's some thoughts on a general vein of how a problem like this could be solved theoretically. Now go, and if you have questions, ask. And it was brutal but I came away from it being able to solve all sorts of problems, and a lot of it was just failure, failure after failure after failure. And most of the time, most people didn't actually complete the assignment, but that w- I realized that that wasn't really the point. We were learning the fundamentals of how to problem solve in this space that was a computer with this language. And it was extremely powerful because I kind of learned how to navigate a computer for the first time effectively in my life, probably. And so I I think that type of learning is extremely effective, but you don't really see that often at all. It's just mostly lecture-based. And I feel like a lot of times when you're listening to that type of information, it's like you're learning things about it, but you're not really internalizing it. Even if you're going and be like, oh, he, like I, this person taught me this solution type, and I'm going to go apply it, you're still just applying that solution. You're not necessarily figuring out how to problem solve in real time on your own, which is really what you need to be able to do in life, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely agree.
0: That sounds like a really fun course. <laughs> right? What would you call it? Uh, problem solving in real time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, So uh, that's cool. So does the rest of the school use these types of tactics or is that just because you're teaching these elective entrepreneurship courses that are a little bit more outside the box?
1: That's a good question. So this course, I I would almost call this course is like the Trojan horse for like these problem-based sorts of things. And so um, when I was a math teacher, the person who was like founded all this curriculum and had the idea and, and did it. He came to the, he emailed the math department one summer and was like, Hey, I have some like data sets from the city of Denver. Like, does anybody want to like use these? I can help you like develop, I can help you adapt this to your curriculum so that your students can like solve a a problem. And so that was like kind of my intro to this kind of learning. I had theoretically Mm -hmm. thought about it, but he was kind of a mentor and helped me do some of the higher level planning Um, Looking back, those projects were disasters, but, (laughs) but uh, that doesn't really exist a lot in other spaces. It's starting to exist more in our elective spaces and some of our, obviously in the engineering spaces and the computer science space and the bioscience space. So it's starting to exist a a little bit more, but I I think like the next growth edge for us is learning like what's a project and what's like project-based learning. A project is like something that happens like at the end of a unit. You are in second grade and you like learn all these geometric shapes that are like beyond a square or a rectangle. And on the last day of the unit, you make some poster that like you color the circle yellow and the octagon is green and something like that. <laughs> right. So where the project is not central to the learning. And so I think we see more, well, I think we're seeing more and more projects, which is a, a, a good a good step in the right direction, but it's not far enough because good project-based learning, good inquiry-based learning has like a central, there's like actually seven components. I don't want to like bore you with all the seven components, but I think one of the, I think there's really two keys. And one is like an engaging question that students can engage with in a small and different angle every single way. Mm. So like those are big, open-ended questions. And then number two is like some sort of public product. So when we work for a business, That's a public product. When I was a math teacher and like I sold it as we're doing a consulting project for the city of Denver on like these four problems, you get to choose your data set and we're going to bring in city counselors and city planners and police officers and community stakeholders to hear your problems or to hear you, to hear your understanding of the problem and to hear your solution. And they're going to give you feedback and you're going to have a back and forth. Mm. And so I think that public product is a a real way because it makes it um, really tangible and it like ups the ante on that experience. And so to back to go back to your original question, unfortunately, no one has done a project in the math classroom like that since I left the math classroom four years ago. But that led me to an opportunity. I actually got to do a training for 17 math teachers last Monday, like a two hour training on doing some of this. Lots of interested people got to do a little bit of training, might even get to do like a, a a series of sessions next year. So I'm hopeful Mm. that we can kind of move in that direction, but also when we are still grading teachers based off of those test metrics, there's like a conflict of interest in them choosing, right? So like of my data points, I had the highest level data on like my SAT growth, but because I spent five weeks consulting for the city, we weren't able to like kind of nail and teach to that end of year test, maybe in the same way that I would have otherwise had I had five extra weeks. Sure. And so my, my data was like the mid-level um, for that for that metric. And that actually impacted my pay in a negative way, but I felt like it was the right thing to do. I'm glad I made that choice. I would make that choice again. And so we need some structural changes at that level so that there are incentives aligned to that for teachers to make those choices. So right now it's really only happening um, in those elective spaces, if at all.
0: Well, that's interesting because I felt like as an individual in engineering school, I I was older when I went back and I started back when I was 24 And I saw that I was having to make the choice between really understanding a concept and studying for the test. And I oftentimes would personally just elect to study the concept because I was like, well, if I understand the concepts at a fundamental level, I'm going to succeed regardless of what I'm doing, even if I don't perform as well on this test. But if I was younger and less experienced at the time that I was, Doing that, I don't think I would have made that choice. I would have just been like, "Well, I need to study for the test," and I probably would have had far less fundamental understanding of the core concepts and walked away worse for wear. And so it seems like there, we're we dealing with that tension between those two things constantly. And one of the things that it always came to mind is it seems like we're not testing effectively if fundamental understanding isn't the thing that we're teaching or, or the testing because it seems like, Hey, if, if you really wanted to test somebody's understanding of core concepts, then you're really under testing their understanding. If you're testing their ability to follow a procedure that doesn't seem really that useful to them or useful to their, you know, to project their ability to do well, even in college. So, I mean, do you agree with that assessment between, you know, Hey, you can do really well on this test, or hey, you're going to be successful in life doesn't really correspond.
1: Yeah, it's definitely way overweighted towards the testing side, right? Like, I think we can, I think there's, there's consensus that there's, it's ways too skewed that direction. Sure. I, I do think there's a role for the, those basic testing sorts of things to, to play a role. And I'd be curious to, this is something, this is like a rhetorical question for me. I'd be curious to like look in the literature to see if there's, Um, recommendations on that sort of a spectrum of things like what are what like observational studies like what are what are the most effective colleges doing around those things Um, what are the most effective high schools doing around those sorts of things and it's it's a multivariate system. Right. Where we have to consider, like, okay, what's the best way to function as an adult that's solving problems in whatever context you're solving in? And then also, like, if you need a piece of paper to get that interview, like, how do we, like, prepare you to even get in the door at that school? Right. So there's, like, there's a lot of things. And so there's, there's the tension of that. Like, the SAT, for example, is becoming more, like, more and more schools are becoming test optional. Somewhere, like, temporarily. Extending that during the pandemic, and now they're going back to the SAT. Hmm. Univers- uh, the University of Denver, for example, is now fully SAT optional. However, for our students, their SAT usually strengthens their profile because we have usually one of the highest te- uh, SAT scores of any high school in the state of Colorado. So there's like the juxtaposition there that like actually that's like helping our students, right? right. And so that's like that actually creates more opportunities to test that way, uh, uh, to teach that way because then students have more access, but then they may be actually slightly less prepared once they have that access. So it's kind of like <laughs> a chicken or an egg thing, right? So I don't, I don't think there's any easy solutions. And I do think that tension is something that we'll, you know, that we'll always be living with in the education system. But I do think that there's, it's very clear and very obvious that we need to be moving much more towards those open-ended solution types of experiences. Um, And and that's hard for a system that, you know, has been around for over, over a hundred years. And there's a lot of institutional memory just embedded in us all. Like every time that schools try to try something new, right. And then, you know, little Alex is coming home from school and You know, dad is trying to help him with his multiplication and then like the actual procedures may be a little bit different. It's probably more intuitive and more conceptually teaching, but dad doesn't know how to do it. Mm. And dad's going to teach Alex the way that, you know, dad learned when he was in high school or in middle school or in elementary. And so like we as a culture have a lot of that like baked into us way more than we probably even think about or realize and I saw a lot of that be kind of vilified with like the common core coming into prominence, you know, eight, 10 years ago, the common core is, it's a set of standards. It's not a curriculum, but a way out that a lot of those things are taught are actually really, really intuitive ways. Um, and it's actually like how we teach numeracy is very similar to like, how a lot of the Eastern Asian cultures teach mm. financial or not financial, sorry, uh, like mathematical literacy. And so there's actually strategies that allow you to, to do things more like computations in your head more quickly. Um, and, and you understand conceptually what's happening. It's actually really good stuff, but there are like all kinds of memes about it everywhere all the time <laughs> because parents don't understand it. And so like we as a, Fighting culture in that way, going against the grain of culture is a, is a really big challenge. And so I think for us to like lead towards things that are actually better is going to take a long time. And I don't know what the best path there is. I, don't, I, I am not an expert enough to, like I said before we started recording, I am the most, the least illustrious guest that you will ever have on this podcast. So I, <laughs> I'm not qualified to offer recommendations for that.
0: I, well, I wouldn't necessarily agree with you. However, what I would say is what you're saying is really fascinating because it's also seems like what you require is really high level teachers in order to be able to execute high level teaching strategy. It's really easy to basically take someone that doesn't really understand math and be like, here's a procedure and this is how you teach algebra. It's just a procedure, but algebra is actually very meta and there's all these different layers to it and nuanced ways of understanding it and geometry and all the relationships between things in the world and what you're actually representing when you're doing a formula. And, but I think most teachers probably don't even really have the fundamental understanding of that to be like, oh, I'm going to apply this nuanced teaching technique to be able to bring out this nuance. So it seems like one of the hardest complexities of that applying that would be how do you get high enough qualified people to be able to even teach something that is that nuanced and that sophisticated? Because you almost have to have somebody like yourself who studied mathematics to be able to say, oh, well, you know, here's how I apply this nuanced approach to teaching mathematics.
1: Yeah, three things. One, I did not major in mathematics. I wanted to. And then when we had to prove all of calculus when I was in that class, like real analysis, I was like, proving all of linear algebra was enough for me. I'm going to stop there. Sure, sure. Sure. so I didn't study. I did. I did study math. I had like over thirty credits, which, if I had them in the right buckets, it would have been more than enough for a minor. I don't even have a math minor, but I have so many credits that I claim to study math because I did. So that's one comment. Comment two is there's actually data that shows that that new teachers who did not study in their degree field, if they teach to towards a test like towards a standardized end of, like summative assessment, they actually can generate higher test scores in the short term than folks who are content experts. Mm. But I'll let you guess what the longitudinal data says.
0: Yeah, they probably don't create good long-term results, I would imagine.
1: Yep. And that's not to say that that's true about every person. We probably have the best math teacher in the state at my high school. She is phenomenal. Her students already are averaging like a five on the AP, AP, score, AP test on their practice tests in February. And the AP test is not until May. Okay. Like, which is like out of this world. And she has like a math, uh, she has a master's in math, not only as her undergrad, but her master's is in math. And she's an incredible teacher. Um, and so she gets incredible data now. <laughs> and like, so like, she's at, like, her students have studied, you know, math at Stanford and at MIT and at Harvard and all, all the, when you think of like Carnegie Mellon, like all the top places you could think of. That's awesome. But on the whole, the big data set, you know, is incentivized, you know, to be that newer teacher who can teach to the test and who can like teach the skill. But what's the skill that they need to know today? How can I overemphasize that versus the big conceptual? So to, to answer your third question, that's a really interesting question. Cause like, if you want to be a teacher in Germany, you have to have a master's to be eligible to teach at all. So you're mm. already talking six years of post-secondary education. And, and in that part of the, in that part of the world, oftentimes you know, t- folks are, and I don't I don't want to, like, That's a. it's a trite answer to be like, it's all about the money, the, we need to treat teachers better, they need to have a higher, you know, social standing, which all, all those things are probably true, right, to a degree, probably to a large degree, but I, I don't think that is just going to, like, solve the problem. I, I also think that our method of how we, so your question was, can you reset your question again?
0: I, I might have lost track of exactly what the question was, but I think what I was getting at was really the concept that you have to have high level individuals teaching these things in order to be able to tease out these nuanced details that these teaching techniques that you're talking about are really trying to get at. Because, I mean, you can you can take a somebody that has, really doesn't understand math at all and be like, here is what you teach so that somebody can execute this procedure and solve a problem if they know exactly all the parameters it's like almost like black box theory of mathematics it's like oh if you see this type of a problem it's stated in this way and here's here are the inputs you apply said formula and you get correct answer out right but there's no real fundamental understanding of why uh, you know the formula is working where if you're trying to teach something on a more nuanced level and you're saying okay well you know, here's actually the inner workings of this formula, the black box, and here's all the nuanced details of different behaviors and where it comes from and all this stuff. You probably understand that thing way better. You probably aren't necessarily as quick as at solving that one specific problem type, given just a, a testing environment of needing to recognize, apply, and move on in just a super rapid way. Uh, but the real world didn't like that. So anyway, but my point is, is that in order to teach in that way that you're describing, you can't just take somebody that doesn't understand the concepts and be like, oh, here, here's the curriculum. You know, it's, it's all about teasing out the details. And they're like, what details? You know, probably, unless they went through some rigorous training program to be able to just fundamentally understand the thing that they are trying to teach.
1: Yeah, I I would agree with that. Like, I'm also kind of a nerd for understanding, like, The more meta, the more conceptual, what are like all the deeper connections? And so like when I, when I taught math, you know, like the, the course I probably taught the most students in over the years was algebra two. And I would be like, there's three things we're going to study this year, positive and negative and zero. That's one greater than, less than, equal to. And any of the permutations of increasing and decreasing, whether you talk about increasing at an increasing rate, decreasing at a decreasing rate, and we're just going to apply those concepts to all sorts of scenarios. Mm. And like we, those are our three lenses for how we're going to think. I, and I felt like that was a really compelling way to make meaning of what wh- we're studying, any kind of function, because that's like the algebra two is like a function here. You're studying all kinds of functions, right? Like right, algebra one you study linear, maybe a little exponential. Then geometry is like totally off, off. The beaten path. And then you come back on the rails and you're studying like five, six, seven different kinds of equations. And so I I felt like that was a really helpful framework, but that wasn't like, to your point, that was not in our curriculum. And so it's, it's those types of conceptual thinking that help you, you know, make decisions in the world. Like my wife and I were like going to be shopping for a house soon. Right. And so we want to know if the thing that we're going to do and how we're going to spend our money, is it going to make our net worth greater, less than or equal to it is 5 or 10 years from now. At what rate is it going to be increasing or decreasing based on a number of variables? But those are the those are the frameworks that we're thinking through. And so I mean it, it I don't say that to like diminish all the nuances and the people who study those things and are very experts and like that's what they do for a living, but those like those are the kinds of ways that we need to think. And so to answer your question about like how do how do we get people into the profession? Or how do we get that into the classroom? That's a big That's a big question. And I, I don't necessarily know what the the most right answer is. I, I do think having folks who have studied something really deeply, I do think that makes a big difference. It's pe- people who have done it, maybe people who have used it in the professional world. I, th- I think we're at an interesting time in education where I less and less is education being something that someone goes into and they do it for 30 or 40 or 50 years. Mm-hmm. I think education is going to be turned into more of a sunrise or a sunset career where people do it to start off their career and education can be as a career can be a great launching pad towards other avenues in society and culture. And I think it has an opportunity to be a great right now, a sunset career for folks who have like been engineers for 20 or 30 years. They want to retire and spend time with their grandkids, but they still want to do something and they have a lot of energy left. And so they can maybe teach for a decade.
0: Right. Apply a lot of that knowledge that they gained over the course of their career and give back to a community of people. Yeah. Makes sense. It also seems just like, I don't know. I I think my educational experiences is colored by some very what I would consider to be almost negative experiences with teachers, right? While having the juxtaposition of some extremely positive ones. Um, and then a lot of just neutral, whatever. And I don't know if other people's educational experiences on average are like this, but I would guess that there's some spectrum more or less looking like that, where you've got some really excellent teachers some really garbage teachers and most people are kind of in the in between space you're maybe you're gaining something but not a whole lot and the vast majority of my takeaways and the things that I use in life in general are the things that I gain from those high end teachers and I was I feel like I was pretty much just wasting my time everywhere else and so to me those teachers that I differentiate were the people that really had extremely deep understanding. I got lucky enough to study biology with a guy who was a NASA biologist. And so he was a high, very high level dude and he just happened to also live in rural Colorado and want to be a teacher. And so I, I learned biology at a high level as a kid, but I also had teachers that were really pretty much uneducated that were teaching teaching, social sciences, like social studies is what we called it in high school in my day. And the things that I look back on, I'm just like, wow, that it's like embarrassing the level of education that was being provided there. And, you know, those people just, they they weren't historians, right? But if I had a historian in the room, somebody that was passionate about that subject matter, guaranteed, I would have learned at a much higher level. I would have learned a lot of nuance there's no way for somebody that doesn't understand those things to deliver the information because they don't even know where to look. They don't know what to tease out. So if I were, you know, in my completely, you know, outside of that world perspective, looking at it, it just seems like there's no way to have really high-level educational experiences without high-level teachers. I mean, you could improve outcomes without that to a certain degree, but if you're really trying to compete on the global stage and say how do we maximize and create a population of people that are going to create generational wealth at rates that beat our competition in the globe how do you do that well you certainly don't do that by just giving everyone like a below average overall experience and hope that people kind of get lucky with the few really high level people that find their way into education because they're like you and just you know find their way there because they're passionate about it. So it seems like we need to figure out some systematic way of pipelining high-level thinkers into teaching because I mean you it seems to me like that is one of the most fundamentally important factors in whether or not a civilization is going to be successful in the long term or not. And if we're not working on that problem as a people, then we're definitely screwing up. And and I mean, even like engineering, right? People generally think of it as like a high level thing, but I could probably teach 95% of the people how to be an average engineer. Maybe not excellent, but you you could teach them how to do it. And yet it's really hard to be a really good teacher, right? Most of the engineers that I work with, even though they're quite good engineers on average, probably couldn't teach at a really high level because that it almost takes not just the ability to do the thing, but the ability to understand it on such a deep level and also to understand human psychology on a deep enough level to be able to deliver that information in an understandable way and like walk somebody through the process. And so it's like, not only do you need somebody that's good at the thing, but you need somebody that's like next level at that thing. If you really want to have a good teacher, that's what it seems like to me.
1: Yeah. It'll be interesting to see, like you identified like some massive structural changes that could maybe, or that they like, that would be what would need, what is needed to kind of address that. And then you also, I saw another category in what you were saying. It's like, hey, let's try these little tweaks here and there, more tweaks here and there, and like, if we make enough tweaks, um, eventually maybe the whole thing will be a lot better because we will have squeezed one or two percent extra out of so many spaces, mm. and th- and that's what education actually feels like. Happens in a building is like, hey, Alex, do a little bit more here, 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 and we're gonna give you your. Four and a half percent raise and seven percent inflation this year. <laughs> and and so I, I I like, I love what you said about your lens about like, hey, if a civilization wants to endure, which is a very appropriate conversation right now with Russia invading Ukraine and China leaning towards the side of Russia and the global geopolitical landscape kind of shifting, it, it almost would have to be, like, a wartime sort of shift where, you know, like, obviously, like, nuclear war um, and the threat of that is what dominated, you know, the, like, post-World War II era till the, the fall of the Soviet Union in the early 90s. And we've been in kind of, like, even really since, like, World War II, we've kind of been in a big nap as far as, like, where our our space, where we exist in the United States on the on the global scene for, oh, yeah. 80, for 80 years. And so... You know, as, you know, we've, we've been in like some sort of like cyber warfare with Russia. You want to talk about the 2016 election. We've been in some sort of like, and how, so we need to like be able to train people to, to do combat digitally. We need to be able to train people to innovate in all sorts. Like, um, I, I saw, I saw an article like famous last words. Um, I saw an article somewhere that taught, that's like, they had like some sort of standard for how they measure innovative output of countries. And like the U S has been like leading historically in that for decades on decades on decades. And, and India has grown and China has grown actually quite a bit, but the projections for like the next like 10 to 25 years are that China will surpass the United States in its innovation. Mm. And so I almost think there needs, there would maybe have to be some sort of a shift geopolitically to where we almost view education as like our greatest, it's like the new age atom bomb, where we'd have to like reinvest all of our resources into that system, into our young people, into training them to be the most competent thinkers that humanity has ever seen. That to me, to get rid of like the, you know, you've got the outlier 10% at each, at each end and you've got the 80% to make more of those teachers go into the high 10% of quality, I, I I would have to foresee I would almost have to foresee something like that happening otherwise we're just gonna keep trying to squeeze the one percent out here the one percent out there that's just kind of like maybe that's my cynical view of like you know I've been teaching in a pandemic for two and a half years and I haven't had a real freaking year since like 2018 19 you know <laughs> so so maybe that's my cynical view there I don't know
0: well I, I think what you're saying is accurate I mean there's definitely people don't tend to take fundamental structural action unless there's a really uncomfortable thing that is threatening or disrupting civilization because people don't tend to just be like, Oh, I am a 50 year thinker. And I understand that in order to compete in 50 years, we're going to need to do X, Y, and Z. And so let's do that now. That's not generally how people think they're like, oh, well, you know, what's this election cycle or, you know, whatever the the near term right. thing. And even in like you're talking about in the classroom, it's like, oh, well, me as a teacher, I have to teach the test. And that's like the short term result. It's, is it actually resulting in a better civilization? Eh, I mean, an argument might be made one way or the other, but it, it's not necessarily tied. Um, do you want another drink, by the way?
1: If you're having one.
0: Yeah, I'll have one. Mind grabbing us one, again, Thank you. Yeah, same thing works. Thank Thanks. You. I mean, but to your point, I think that we're actually in that situation right now. I think we're actually in crisis mode and most people just don't realize it. You know, the the Russia-China system that is being built is global you know, there's so much global influence from those two nations that is extremely dangerous to Western civilization. And people are kind of just like, oh, you know, we're just going to, you know, sleep on this, as you were saying, we've been in a nap. And I'm reading a book right now uh, written by the chiefest, what was he, the uh, national security advisor for Donald Trump during his era, historian, military historian guy, extremely intelligent. Uh, McMaster is his last name. And he is talking about this very thing that we had this idea that democratic liberal societies were just fundamentally better. And after the cold war, essentially they were just going to rise to more and more prominence over time. The, you know, major power competition is over. We don't really have to compete because it's just fundamentally better to be a democratic liberal society in all ways. And I think what's, you know, the people that are paying attention and understand these things are starting to say, "Eh, actually, we're seeing all the signs of having slept on these subjects for so long, both from an international relations and military and all that sort of thing. But also just how are we competing economically? And I think one of the ways that you compete economically effectively over time is to have a very highly educated population and have people that are able to perform at a higher level than other people. Ultimately you're in competition. And so to me, it's just like you, if you sit on your laurels for long enough, you're going to fall behind. And if you fall behind, then you you lose your influence and stature in the world. And then what happens? Well, somebody else has that influence and stature, and you have to kind of be beholden to them in a certain level. And we're starting to see that shift in power, as you said.
1: Yeah, like, and maybe we're digressing too much from our lanes of (laughs) education and religion here, but yeah, I mean that's that's Putin's calculus, is right. Like, we're too divided as a country. We are the American dominance on the geopolitical landscape is it, it's it, the, the sun is set. And so now is, t- is the his time to rise, rise to power. And we, the, we just don't, you know, we would just rather not pay five or $6 a gallon for gas for six months so that there would not be a global catastrophe. Like right. that could be in, like you were saying, the thinking cycles of like, Oh, well just this election cycle, that's literally, Kind of what's at play, and, and those are the factors that are motivating some some of the shifts that were some of the the, st- the strategic um, moves that our government's making on that landscape. So it, it's we're we're living in a in a very unique moment.
0: It, it, we are. It's it's kind of a scary moment, honestly. I mean, I've lived in China, and I know how bad it is for humanity and the people that live there, as, as far as personal freedoms and and whatnot, and. I don't want that type of a world to be the norm. I think it's worse for humanity across the board. I'm actually really surprised that China is going to be out competing the United States in terms of of innovation because what I personally always thought is when you have a constrained society overall, you're going to have less innovation because people are just not able to think for themselves as much. They're not allowed to and so fundamentally they're interacting with less information they're not being able to be as creative and so you're going to have less innovation across the board so do you have an opinion on what might be the driving factor in them surpassing the united states in innovation
1: yeah i do um so when you think about like education right like that's kind of the bedrock of where innovation comes from is like you need a skilled workforce that can think and can solve problems right and so I'm not sure if it's in China or specifically, but students go to school. I think it's in in China. They go six days a week, and it's like 10 to 12 hours a day. And especially because parents... That's accurate. For a couple generations have only had one, maybe two kids. Each family is like hyper-focused helicopter parent on that one kid doing as well as they can do in school. Because China is much more of a meritocracy than America is. America has a lot more nepotism. And if your, your family has money and is connected, then you will just have more opportunities. So that I do think is a strength of an autocratic state is it can be someone like for better or for worse, someone like Trump would never be able to rise to political power because there are frameworks that everyone has to go through to be able to have those, those, those sorts of positions to be a leader in your field. You have to have like you know, gone through a certain state. I think in the government, it's like the prime minister of China has been in government for like 30 or 40 years. Like his entire career has sure. been in like that ecosystem, which when you think about it, like if you've, you know, if you've been in engineering for 30 years, you're going to be a hell of a good engineer. Right. If sure. I, st- if I end up staying in education for 30 years, I'm going to be probably 10 times better than, than I am now. And I think I'm like pretty decent right now. So, I think when you think with the
0: caveat that that's not always the case, but sure,
1: of course, right? Like blanket statements, not always true, obviously. So I think to build on just the amount of education that they've had, um, and then when you think about like what do our students do in their free time? Well, they get on TikTok, right? They can be on TikTok, which is actually um, is founded in China. They can get on TikTok and do whatever they want. And like, it's just, it's all, it's all the viral algorithms, right? In China, if you're under the age of 17 and you get on TikTok, you're limited to 45 minutes a day and it's all educational content. Mm. So you can control for those factors to where you can like almost create innovation out of like the way that people are supposed to think and work and the way the system is structured to produce in that sort of a way.
0: Makes sense. I think even in the short term, I've noticed in myself when I'm just bathing my brain in good, useful information, I'm more creative. I'm more capable of problem solving. And if I, you know, fall into the trap of social media and I'm just scrolling through videos too much instead of reading some other more stimulating content, In real time, I become more or less creative or more or less generally intelligent or insightful. And so when you aggregate those experiences across a lifetime, especially in the most formative years, I mean, I didn't grow up in a world where TikTok or Instagram or any of these algorithmically driven uh, sort of experience spaces existed, but I can imagine in the formative years, it really probably even changes your fundamental brain structure and chemistry and I'm sure if you're just sitting there immersed in this thing that isn't really developing you, but just stimulating dopamine hits over and over and over again, you're kind of causing a, like a pseudo drug addict population that are just utilizing algorithmically driven dopamine hits instead of some other drug to, to give them that stimulus. And you, you pit those folks against a population that is awash in useful ideas constantly you're it's pretty obvious who's going to be the winner in that situation right yeah
1: i was also equally surprised at the at the innovation metric and i'm not sure like all of the you know the multivariate factors that kind of went into calculating that like one <laughs> that one factor that like a, a single number that they came up with but, uh, it, it was just, it really stood out to me and stuck with me. I can, I can, uh, try to find that, refine that and send it to you and you can maybe put it in the show notes or something. That'd be awesome. Yeah. It's interested.
0: Yeah. I mean, some of the things that I noticed in China and I feel like I learned this in a fundamental way. I didn't realize this before living there is just how hard everyone works there all the time, you know? It's the baseline. You have children that are going to school and then they're going to after school. And when they go home from after school, they're still working. You know, there's working all the time. And it's highly competitive. And their value system is on education. And I feel like that is, in spite of the fact that they're in this constrained space, they're still able to become innovative just through that amount of exposure to information and i feel like if you had that pairing with a more of an open society where people could think more freely then you have a bunch of people that are operating on the level of elon musk and creating massive amounts of value for the world but instead it seems like we're in liberal society so there is room for some people to reach those heights of hyper creativity and hyper productivity but the average isn't going to be there. So you've got this bifurcation between the average everyday person that is kind of just going through the motions and the super high level actors in the world and whatever they're doing. But if you want to fundamentally create entire groups of people that are the majority of their operating at a high level, you've got to rethink the way you do education. It seems like so. I mean, I don't think that we got that far off topic when we're talking about international relations and stuff because it seems like it's at the core of everything. I mean, it's the, the core of democracy. If you want to have a democratic civilization that actually works, you need to have an educated populace. There's There's no such thing as a functioning democracy without it if you want to compete on the global stage economically, how do you do that? Well, you have more people creating value in the world than your neighbor. You know, it, it comes down to like every part of civilization is hinged upon that. And if you don't have a good system there, you're kind of screwed on everything else.
1: Yeah. I think of that system, like needing, there's like, there's like two categories that you need to create innovation. One is like that sense of like, Freedom and creativity and like almost you almost need boredom as a space for like those ideas to pop up, which is like what you could argue the the liberal societies, those that kind of side that that part of the spectrum has. And then the autocratic states, on the other hand, you also need like lots of knowledge, lots of like data points like of knowledge. And then innovation comes from like combining all of the permutations of that. And so if you have like more building blocks, then there's exponentially more permutations of what those building blocks could be built into. Sure. And so like, I almost see China is almost like adding more and more and more building blocks so much so that that exponentiality is greater in magnitude in the long run than like this creative freedom of like a liberal democracy.
0: Alone, yeah. Yeah,
1: so I'm just like, that's just like a curious thing to, I mean, obviously no one has like quantified that necessarily, but that's just an interesting, those are the two things that I think about when I think about that, right? Because like Mm. my students, we try to create that ecosystem where they can be creative, right? And I realize that they only have a limited number of building blocks because they're 17 and 18 years old. Right. They're very smart for 17 and 18 year olds. And I didn't know shit when I was 17.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, nobody knows it all ever, but you certainly know less when you're 17 or 18 than you do later in life, uh, provided that you continue to learn and grow. So I think what you're saying is really insightful that there's sort of this second order process that occurs when you have enough information inside a human brain where they're able then to make connections between things that they wouldn't have been able to make those connections between not having those data points. I mean, I've experienced that in my own life, you know, as my experience has grown and, you know, I've taken the, the approach of trying to learn as much about everything that I encounter as I can over time. So as I've done that, I find that I'm able to cross pollinate into more and more things that I've learned historically. And, all these things kind of come together and I'm able to be more creative. It's like this second order process, but without that data and just sort of empty canvas to work on, it's like, yeah, I'm not going to probably come up with anything that's that great. I'm just going to be like, Oh, well, you know, it's like I was creative. I, I made a novel shape. It's like, is it useful to anybody? Is it really, you know, useful to you? Maybe, maybe not, but the odds of it being are far less than if I, had this lifetime of experiences and data that I've accumulated and then can use in an ecosystem that does allow me to be creative with it. So it seems like you really need both to have maximal outcomes as a society at large. Because that's the other thing that I noticed about China is that people worked super hard, but they probably could have had better outcomes working less hard if they were thinking a little bit more outside the box and less rote memorization, but you probably over time, if you just work hard, like constantly, eventually you're going to have enough connections to be able to be creative. So as a society and and if you're thinking about like a social brain across all the brains in a society, you're going to have probably these sort of meta outcomes as a civilization because I kind of think is society as this shared consciousness where all ideas are in an ecosystem and everyone's learning from everyone else, whether they realize it or not. And there's like these higher ordered ideas that are the result of the shared concepts that are just floating around in the ether of the social brain. So, at any rate, I digress. But it, so it seems like education, uh, something I want to circle back on, is education and religion. Because I think a lot of times those things can be diametrically opposed to one another. They don't have to be by any stretch of the imagination, but they can be. And in my experience, I think they were. So as somebody that comes from a religious background, and I think you consider yourself to to be religious, how do you reckon with the conflict between a fundamentalist Worldview, if you want to call it that. I, I don't know if you really associate with that, but th- that concept and the idea of trying to create thinkers that are going to be the most highly competitive, creative minds and be the best for themselves in society. I just want to get your take on that.
1: Yeah, I think religion at its worst is the worst thing humans do. Think about all the wars we've started and all the bloodshed in the name of religion. Sure. I also think at its best, religion can be the most compassionate, inclusive, whole-making thing that we as humans do. And so, I, in my own, like, journey of, like, how do I grapple with that exact question myself and my story and who I am, I definitely do not have, like, a fundamentalist lens at all. I I would almost consider myself, like, a mystic. Hmm. And that, like, there's a sense of mystery and not knowing and not knowing is like antithetical to fundamentalism. And like in that not knowing one can encounter all of those things that make us most human. And so with that lens, that allows me to see in each human, the good in them, the divine in them, the, the, the beauty that that lives in them. And so my role as an educator then is to be naming that for that, Person and to be drawing that out of them, Mm. to be watering that, and to be tending to that, whatever that may be. I I have my set of like theological constructs and language that I use for myself and my own spiritual care, right? But like I'm not addicted to that terminology, to that framework, to those sets of ideas, uh, because I do think that all of the major world religions have those, like the perennial tradition says that all great world religions are teaching the same thing. They're just all coming at it from a different angle. And, like, I think some different perspectives have better language and constructs and metaphors and parables for certain concepts, and some have better ones for other things. And so, like, I use the ones that are useful to me when they're useful to me, if they're the ones that I grew up with. And when they're not useful, I lay them down and, like, try to find something else that's even better that leads me to to more love or to creating more love or to inviting more love into the world or compassion or more oneness or if it comes to dealing with suffering, for example. And so education is, while it is like those ideas and the knowledge and that pursuit, like especially with young people, they're learning how to like learn all, of they're like learning how to engage all those parts of themselves and they just come up without them even knowing it. And so for me it's a gift to be able to to interact with them and to be able to be a truth teller to them in those situations whether that's like you know I, I, one of the biggest compliments i received this year from a kid is and he doesn't like me he goes he goes mister you just said what you needed to say and you said it so nicely and I, I forget what was happening, but it was some sort of the, of the sense where like they had some work time, and or I was like trying to give like three minutes of instructions for their hour of work time, and he was like probably having some sort of side conversation about something that happened at lunch because the class was right after lunch, and like I was actually kind of having a bad day or whatever. But I, I go to him, I go, hey, I I don't think that you meant to be X or Y or Z or A or B or C. But that's kind of how it came across to the room. And here's what I. Here's what I know. I know this thing's important to you. And here's what I think you were trying to do. And also there's this bigger context. And can you try to be a little bit more aware of that next time? And your impact is not just lie with you. It lies with everyone. And mm. so he was like, I thought you were going to tell me I was being a little shit and then I should shut my mouth or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and you just invited me into this more whole way of being, you know? So to, to, to me, like, you could call that good psychology, right? It probably is. That's definitely true. But that's, like, like I've been the sponsor for our Muslim Student Association for four years now. And, like, that's a lot of fun. I learn a lot from interacting with those kids and hearing their conversations and helping them do their community service. And, like, what great religion doesn't, like, serve the world? Like, and that's, like, its intention, right? So I think that's really cool to be able to be a part of that and to, like, and to just listen and create that. And to create a culture in our little building, in our little room, with like thirteen students, like talking about whatever the issue is, and for them to see that, like, you know, some white Christian straight male can like be open mm. and can can listen and can learn and can be curious and can share experience that probably is valuable for them to learn from too, um, and like, that's kind of cool to me. That's like that's like the coolest thing, right? Yeah, that's um, awesome. And like, we don't have to agree on the language or the metaphors, but like, ultimately, we're all probably after a pretty similar thing.
0: So, yeah, um, no, totally. I mean, one of the reasons that I was really interested in you as a human being early on is just that you are open and you're curious and you're nuanced in your thinking. And part of the reason I asked you that question is I I figured you'd have a really interesting answer because I, I think. Most religious people, or I, I shouldn't say that, a, a lot of people that consider themselves religious aren't necessarily nuanced in their thinking, right? And I, but I would honestly say that I think human beings are religious in their nature, right? And they just call it different things they call it Christianity, or they call it atheism, or they call it work, work, yeah there's all these different sort of belief systems that are the scaffolding for how we interact with the world that aren't really necessarily like the true reality. I mean, there isn't necessarily true reality. It's just like, here's how I go about approaching my day as a human being. You know, it's like, I'm an iteration of a human and I have to interact with the world. So I have to have some sort of framework to interact with it. It seems like where people get into dangerous territory in general, whether it's they're like, oh, I'm a communist or I am a Muslim or I'm a Christian, is that they become that fundamentalist that doesn't have the ability to see the world in nuanced ways or to empathize with people that are outside of their framework. And so I don't really know what the solution to that is. But what I think there needs to be more of is more of this compassion towards others and that like nuanced thinking about the world, the understanding of the gray areas, because that's where oftentimes where real truth seems to lie to me. And and then also understanding our fundamental nature as human beings and, and things that are useful to us, right? Like I think we've lost largely a lot of the tools that were available to us from religion when as a civilization, we stepped away from religion because we just discarded everything as we were kind of talking about before. And it's like community, really important part of being a human being. And religion was the scaffolding for community for the majority of human history, probably. And you step away from that. And then what do you have? You have listless people that have no sense of community. And they're just kind of like easily like pulled this way or that because they're just looking for any semblance of community. I think that's why people are addicted to their phones and social media. They're just like, I have no community and I'm hungry for some connection with other human beings. And so I think it's important to also learn the lessons that were kind of encapsulated within religion and because that's how we stored information for so long. But it, it seems like you, you need, if, if you want to be a high level human in general, you need to balance that and whatever sort of infrastructure that you can pull out of those religious systems with the ability to think in nuanced ways. Because circling back to religion, you know, when I was young, I, I grew up in a highly religious family, and things like evolution were not something that my family was okay with. Uh, to me, yeah, I'm a scientist and an engineer at this point in my life. Evolution is just a fact. You know, it you know, I can I can deduce that through observations of the world. I don't need uh, an opinion yep. <laughs> to uh, or it, it's not really up for debate. It's just there there's facts of the world. Mm-hmm. But in in my education, there was this real strain between my family's belief and what I considered to be a fact. And I could name numerous different examples of that, but that's just a really stark one. And I think that fundamentalist viewpoints in general tend to come to a point where the facts or the science or the observations of the world as they evolve are going to become diametrically opposed with this rigid system that can't evolve. And so I'd I'd be really interested to get your opinion about how as human beings that are trying to operate in the modern world and are trying to have community and are trying to preserve the things that were so good about religion and human civilization and gave us some meaning and culture and community while also being nuanced and understanding that the world is gray. Like what, what does that look like to you in the modern world? I mean, cause I feel like you've kind of grappled with that internally. Like what does that look like?
1: Oh man, I don't... (laughs) That's a big question. Uh, I I think I could speak for me and what's worked for me. And I think... Sure. I I think most of the time, like to connect with what you were saying about folks who identify as religious, and I do agree with you that we are... Humans tend to be religious in some form, whether that's our routines, our patterns, our disciplines, our orientation towards living a life. I would agree with you there. And so I think... The thing that when people who identify with religious, with being religious, I think what they get wrong is they try to propagate their ideas. They say, "Hey, here's what has worked for me. This is how it works. You need to do what worked for me." Um, and so there, you get like proselytizing and let me convince you. In life, I don't, I don't believe in giving advice. I don't believe in trying to convince anybody that to think what I think. And so that makes life a whole lot easier. <laughs> it makes it a lot less pressure filled um, if I'm not trying to convince anybody of believing anything or doing anything the way that I do anything. So when you ask me that question, I'll just, sh- I don't think I have a solution for it. I'll just share what's worked for me. Yeah. And maybe you'll grab onto parts of that and maybe somebody else will grab onto a different part. And so for me, there was that sense of connection and that sense of you know community and this is what we do. And that was like our fundamental lens for what life was when I was when I was growing up, and so for me that was like the most core like ground of being structure that I could engage with, and so I had had real tangible experiences where that had been, hey, this is going to be a thing that's like really important to me. So for me that journey looked like re-engaging those structures in a way that felt authentic to me, and I think. One of the one of the people that I like like their readings their writings the most. he talks about like in religion there's it's like this holy tricycle of of things that we do. there's like tradition, uh, there's scripture, and then oh shoot, what's the third one? I can't remember what the third one is. being on a more extended long form podcast is a lot of pressure <laughs>
0: <laughs> no I mean it's okay i I think
1: um but but in 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 all of that like. I got to re-engage all, in like experience, personal experience. Okay. And he, he talks about like, you know, different sects of, of religions tend to emphasize like, you know, maybe two of those and not the other one. Mm. And so for me, in like I think evangelical fundamentalism, they shut off the personal experience. You're taught to not trust yourself because that maintains the status quo more than anything.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, and so for me, that was re-engaging my own sense of Inner knowing and really cultivating that and like paying attention to that growing that being in spaces that would like nourish that And so for me, that's been really 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 healthy Um is is to engage that inner experience for me to be able to trust my own self And so, you know having a community around me that like nourishes that thing in me because that's what I needed um was a was a really healthy thing and and I think people can find their connection in a myriad of ways. And religious community's been a great context for that for me, um, in a really strong way. I I also like just to share a little bit more about my story, like I wanted to have like people that I was going to church with, air quotes, to be like people that I would call up on a Friday night <laughs> <laughs> and like that I'd want to hang out with and like have a beer or something, you know. So <laughs> I was just like, that's what I want. So I'm going to like, just find that and whatever that looks like is great. Um, and if it's feels awkward, then like, I don't want that, you know, like that's probably not going to fit my full expression of who I am. Sure. So I just like found, found my people and that's actually probably the biggest reason I stayed in, in Denver after that year of grad school was because a lot of the transformation that was happening, happening there was like, was, was safety. And when we, when we, when we live in, so I do think, I do think I have some things that would be, that could be good to lift up for people to think about. I think number one is we live in like such a soundbite, judgmental, black and white, judgmental culture, just to find spaces of safety. I think people need safety. I think our connection to social media, it's always like post, get likes, have the right thing. Like, what's the soundbite? Like, are you on this side? Or are you on this side? I just think to be safe, to just be I think that is something that we that a lot of people. Um, as someone who's like led a, a small group of people for eight years in this in a community, and have seen people come in, and I think people just need safety.
0: Um, Healthy and, relationships in general require safety.
1: Yeah, they they really do. And being married to a counselor, she demands safety, which is good because that teaches <laughs> me that teaches me how to be a more safe person. Um, and being an, a being a good educator, like I've needed to be a safe person for students. Because students have to feel safe before they can learn, Mm. and then I think from that safety, like I think we just need friends and pals and people that we can like be ourselves with, and I think that comes from safety, right? Like uh, if you think about all the different kinds of relationship, you know, partner, parent to child, boss to subordinate, like teacher to student, a lot of those power dynamics can be kind of weird, but in like a friendship, there's just complete safety and acceptance and that's why friendship is like the crown jewel of all the kinds of relationships is because as soon as a friendship is is like hey you can't share this thing with me and i like reject it or try to correct you or try to get you to believe something different then like the friendship's not going to work you know if you're in like <laughs> right. a marital relationship like well there's like some sort of commitment and like whether it's like legal or spiritual or both that like maybe you want to engage it for a little longer than maybe what you would if it were a friendship same thing in like parent child or like teacher student like there are some kids that i know they want to get the heck out of my class cuz they don't like that's okay there's always kids like that right <laughs> and then you know same thing with with like boss and subordinate right like those are relationships that there are power dynamics that make them less likely to be safe but i think friendship is is like one of the most beautiful things we can experience as a human it's super fun
0: yeah i know i i wouldn't disagree with that at all I also, as a leader of, a, you know, people in a corporation, I think one of the most fundamental things of being a good leader is creating a safe environment for people to be people. Because I think there is this idea that you've got unhealthy power dynamics are the norm kind of, and just all types of relationships that that aren't friendships in our society and probably many others. But what i find is that when i create really safe spaces for my team to operate and to come to me with problems or information and they feel free to come and voice those concerns we're more effective as a team we're more effective interpersonally you know they're they're happier so i don't think it needs to be that way but yeah the tendency is towards weird relationships in in those categories of things. But I think as we, as we evolve as people, I think we should be striving to be closer to a space where people can be really good versions of themselves, but also open simultaneously. Cause you know, we, we do seem to be in a paradigm where judgment and kind of leveling some sort of like shame against people is the norm and otherness is the norm. Mm -hmm. And, I, I, this is something else that I wanted to talk to you about. Religion for, the reason I wanted to talk to you about religion is because there really seems to be an otherness that is created in society between people that identify as being religious and people that don't, right? And there's sociological systems that are built around this. There's political diversification that is built around around this. And it's certainly not always the case, but you have a lot of, you know, it's like the right is associated with Christian religion and the left is associated with non-Christian, whatever you want to call it, like pseudo liberal postmodern liberalism or something along those lines. And so it's like we're, we're just creating more and more of this otherness where people aren't really trying to understand each other. Uh, but they're creating these systems that are, this is my association, this is my group, and anyone that lives outside of that group is dangerous and they're wrong, and I don't really have to listen to what they have to say, which I think is just a dangerous thing for society at large. So I, I, I want people to understand, and I want myself to understand better how people that are walking through the world with a strong religious viewpoint are relating to each other, their work, everything around them, right? Because I think that understanding like will bring people that aren't in that context more empathy towards those people, and, and hopefully the other way around. I think empathy is cyclical. So at any rate, I, I don't know that I had a very coherent question that kind of came out of that, but maybe one that would be interesting to ask is how does it feel in society currently to be a person like yourself who's nuanced and educated and yet is religious. You know, is it alienating? Is it, do you feel judged by a lot of the people in society? Like what, what's the experience like?
1: That's a good question. Uh, I, I think it, at face value, a lot of the things that I would maybe identify with, you don't, I don't lead with, Obviously, I let them maybe come up, come up more organically when I sense like uh, that I can trust someone, or that there's safety, or that I can express uh, a part of myself. Not that I'm like actively hiding parts of myself, but you know, like for for a long time, you know, I think to sh- to share a little bit about my story, like growing up in e- evangelical fundamentalism, and then I going to a pluralistic, large urban high school, the juxtaposition of those two things, I felt like I was living in the tension of that. And a lot of times, like my friends who were like the pastor's kid or someone else or whatever, like they were less what that culture, the evangelical fundamentalist culture would have called, they were less Christian than maybe like my Hindu or Muslim friends at school. Mm. And so that has kind of been like a defining tension for me how do I make sense of all of this, that these people are more compassionate and more loving than people who claim to like profess the same thing or whatever churchy language you'd want to use. Sure. So that, that tension has really guided just my whole life story. And so I, I think I don't like so much of the fundamentalist thing always has to happen or the church thing, even if you just would want it to open up has to happen under like the church's name or the church's banner. And why can't, like, good things just happen for their own sake? And so I don't feel necessarily a need to, like, label myself as religious or identify myself as religious. Certainly, if you were to, like, put me in a corner and, like, be like, what are the 10 most important things about you? Like, that may show up somewhere on the list. I don't even know. Like, that's just, I just made up that question. <laughs> that, may, <laughs> that may not show up on the list. I don't know. But... um Like, that's certainly a core part of me, but I just don't feel the need to just be, like, aggro, so aggressive with, like, my identity all the time. So I think, one, a sense of deep security and knowing who you are is that I don't, like, need that external validation, like, oh, I need to, like, you know, find the other teachers at school who are Christian. That way we can, like, pray for the students. I don't have to, like have that little flex in my own heart for myself you know like I don't need <laughs> right. I don't need that not even for myself so I think a lot of times people will get to know me and sometimes they're like I don't know how to make sense of you
0: <laughs> those are the best types of people yeah
1: <laughs> yeah so like me and this uh, me and this Catholic guy at school we would always have these jokes of like yeah we work with a bunch of like you know socially conscious atheists. And they don't know what to do with us religious guys over here who like drink beer and are like, you know, super liberal when it comes to, like a lot of our, a lot of our things. Like when it comes to economic policy, I'm not necessarily super liberal, but when it comes to social policy, definitely very liberal. So like they just they're like, what do I do with you? You fit in the box, but you don't. But you do. But you don't. And so like honestly, that's become become kind of like a fun thing for me, be able to like defy someone's conventions if they're if they're curious. Sure. And so I. To go back to your thing about like, you know, religion and like people sometimes having an antagonistic posture if they are religious towards other people who are of a different belief system. I just think curiosity is like such a great value to have in life. And so I'm just always like curious to hear about people's experiences and to learn like to say like what you were saying to like to learn more about their experience and their life and their view and their perspective on things. And I think when we have more of that, then the world is more connective and the world is more compassionate. And so to, to be a religious person, I just try to like be that curiosity because that sometimes is antithetical to what they think religious folks are or could be. And so I'm fine if I fit inside a box and I'm fine not fitting inside a box. And so like my identity is like pretty stable um, and pretty secure. And so I think like that makes it pretty easy for me to navigate the world.
0: Yeah, which makes sense. I mean, the people that are confident in who they are, are it's much easier for them to have a nuanced or compassionate view of other people because they're not necessarily seeking validation in those experiences. They're like, yeah, I'm comfortable with who I am. You can be who you are and, and that's okay. I don't need you to be like me to validate my fragile view of myself, whether or not it's that whether that's like I'm a social media influencer or I'm a prophetizing, you know, whatever, check the box religion, it all sort of fits into the same category as far as I'm concerned, where you're trying in some way to validate your own worldview and give yourself some feeling of coherence. But if you are confident, or comfortable with who you are in the general sense, you're much more able to just go through the world in a more curious way. I think what you were saying about curiosity is, is really insightful because I think a lot of what I see that I don't like about religion is a lack of curiosity and training people that there are certain things that you shouldn't be curious about. And, and in my religious upbringing, I think that was one of the things that drove me away from religion is that there's a lot that would, you know, I was a questioning person. I always have been, and I would ask certain questions and there weren't answers that people were really willing to either then explore. Right. And I'm like, okay, well there, you know, there's, there's fundamental things here that I'm observing that don't seem to have internal coherence I'm a young person. There don't seem to be any answers. And the people that are preaching this to me certainly don't seem to have explored this, even at the level that I'm questioning it. So, you know, discard, you know, flawed system. And, and I, I guess I also developed a perspective that it's dangerous, not only to individuals, but to societies to have any system that discourages people from being curious and open to exploration in, in general. And I mean, I, I think you could look at North Korea or any totalitarian state and see the, the nth degree of philosophies that kind of encourage people to be closed and to only just follow versus think. And I think religion can definitely be employed. I mean, air quotes religion. Yeah. Um, any, any system of human thought that is really rigid can be employed to kind of enslave people so
1: yeah and religion should be setting people free yeah setting them internally it should be setting them free not like in terms of like oh your civil rights you should be set free but like in terms of your sense of yourself and what you thought you had to be or who you thought you were it should just set it just it should set you free to from any expectation of who you are yeah um so yeah, if it's not if it's not doing that, then to me it's not religion.
0: I think for me, religion has a lot of baggage, so I use the word spirituality, yeah. um, just because religions do tend to be more constrained systems of thought, in in my experience, or, or at least the way that we utilize that term in society at this point in time, you know, it's like I when I say religion, I think you know, Islam, Christianity. Uh, you know, check the box, whatever you want to call it, and they all have their shtick, and that's what they're sticking to, and it's sort of an immobile thing. It's it's like a monolith in time, and it's it's not really like a a system of thought. It's more like, hey, this is what we think, and that's it. But that's probably just language and how we use it, right? Um, one could could call anything a religion if but to me, religion is just a belief system, I guess, at the end of the day, if I were to have to define it. Uh, and which is why I, I said that I think that people are religious in their nature. You can't really operate without belief systems for better or worse. And, you know, I have personally experienced the detrimental side of not having rigid belief systems in some ways, right? you know, like I would consider myself a pretty nuanced thinker, but I've also made some morally questionable choices in my life because I had fundamentally rejected all morality at certain points in time, right? Where I was like, well, you know, if, if the things that I was taught were not really founded in the system that I believe in, morality is just kind of up for grabs. And and so it, it took me a lot of personal work, and I'm still probably working through this, to develop systems of morality or behavior, whatever you want to call it, that actually reflected good outcomes and relationships that I actually wanted to cultivate and a nuanced way of working through the world. Where I think religion at its best kind of gives somebody, like you were saying, from the fundamentalist point of view a framework for operating and hopefully you know treating people decently and all those sorts of things at its best at its worst of course it's the opposite of that but at its best it's like here's some scaffolding for just how to behave here's a community you know go forth and prosper but when you're sort of flung to the wind and you're an individual it's like that's kind of a also dangerous in its own ways
1: yeah, I could, I, I to, I'm tracking what you're saying. I think when it comes to, to religion, it's I agree with what you said about it being a belief system, but I, I don't think it's just a belief system. So like the theological word for a belief system is like orthodoxy, which means right belief. Um, and that's kind of what the, the Western side of the church, like Catholicism, Protestantism, have, has kind of emphasized. But within the Great Schism in like of the 11th century, the greek orthodox church is kind of what held orthopraxy which is like right practice or right living mm. and so i think many theologians will argue that for the last 1000 years you know the west has had this these systems of right belief which have propagated you know what we know to be fundamentalism in the last 100 years in the united states whereas the west has or the east sorry has had held more of the right practice and like they've been more the mystical arm of of Christendom at large. And so I I think for me to like study and to learn about that has been, has been really meaningful because to live a life full of compassion, full of love, full of caring and support for other people around me, that's to me, that looks way different in every single, that could look one way in one context and it could look the exact opposite in another context. That could cause me to be very forgiving in one context, and then another to like push someone away to never let them in again. And so I I do think that like, especially in our Western minds, we've been taught that like we have to figure out because of the that religious context when religion dominated so many cultures for so long. Like religion not being at the forefront of a culture or society is a is a in human history is a very new phenomenon. And so I think we still have like a lot of the, a lot of those things still baked into our culture, into our consciousness, even though we don't use that language anymore. And oh, so yeah.
0: Yeah. We, we definitely live in a Christian society, oh, even if, yeah. you know, the, all the belief systems are founded in Christianity.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, you just, like think about like our tax statuses, right? Are you married or single? Right. That's all like,
0: <laughs> right. That, that's That's Christian.
1: But yeah. Like I didn't care that. Well, I mean, this is maybe too much of an aside, but like Carol was like, I want to get our marriage license on the day we get our wedding. And I was like, well, my commitment to you is not what the state says. <laughs>
0: so,
1: <laughs> but I totally see your point, but okay, cool. <laughs> so we can do that. But uh, yeah, so I think for, for me and my own like story and journey, like r- reclaiming, if you will, that side of like the orthopraxy has allowed for more of the nuance in that thinking that maybe just orthodoxy left On its own, can knock things kind of out of their sense of balance, and I think that's definitely what I experienced. And sounds like it could be part of what you experienced. And you were like, "That doesn't make any sense." And I think that's a million percent valid. And like so many people have experienced that, and that's too bad. That like I hate negative experiences in general. Like, why do there have to be negative experiences? You know,
0: (laughs) Uh, it's part of life, probably. Yeah,
1: yeah, true, true, true.
0: But yeah, I mean. I mean, in a way, it definitely shaped who I am. And I actually really value the experience because here's what I honestly feel like I gained from it. I was operating within an extremely rigid system that, in the context of living in a more broad viewed civilization, it was kind of easy. It didn't take like an intellectual genius to identify the discrepancies in the system, right? It's like, you know, this doesn't add up with that. I think any religion that you probe at long enough is going to have some pretty obvious things that just don't logically add up. So if you're, if you're coming at it from the tools of logic and that's just the way that my mind operated, it it wasn't long before I was like, Hey, there's some fundamental things that just aren't tracking here. And what were those things? I mean, I.
1: Sorry, I've been trying not to ask questions. Yeah, your podcast. No,
0: no, feel free. I mean, this is a conversation. Some of those things for me were the concept that God is fundamentally compassionate and loving in a pure, one hundred percent way, and simultaneously that God is all knowing, meaning that God understands the outcome of every action of every human that will ever occur across time ever. And God is perfect. And you take all of those things in juxtaposition with one another and they don't seem to add up because one of those has to be incorrect in their fundamental state. So it's like the axioms of the system are wrong because if you have an all loving God, you're not going to have a God that just like creates suffering because they can, that doesn't make any sense. If you have a perfect God, they're never going to make a mistake and create a system accidentally where people suffer. Mm. And you're also simultaneously not going to have a, a God that is all knowing that is going to create a bunch of human suffering sort of at the origin of of civilization or like human existence the garden of Eden or whatever you want to call it. And then also, you know, punish those people for the actions that you knew they were going to take with the character that you gave them when you built them. It seems pretty fucked up. Right. It's like, you actually sound kind of like a dick, you know, like you're kind of an (laughs) asshole that happens to have the power of creation. Right. Like, so that like entity that is described as being all loving, all knowing, all powerful, and yet has created this system where there's so much human suffering on a daily basis doesn't, if I'm just using the tools of logic, those things don't track with one another. And so I think those are pretty easy to identify discrepancies within the system. And if you're, if you're just coming at it from a rigid fundamentalist viewpoint. And so, when I had to sort of extract my thinking out of that, what it forced me to do, I think, is look at every aspect of my existence from a similar lens. And so now at this point in time, I think that every viewpoint that I hold has to be weighed against the same sort of level of rigor. And I recognize that the vast majority, I I would be willing to say every single human system that exists, belief system has those axiomatic flaws and their fundamental underpinning. And so I, I, don't feel like I really deeply associate with any single one of them, but I'm able to sort of like transverse throughout them and grab the things that are useful to me and try to build my own cobbled together worldview that is. Feels mo- more coherent mm-hmm. uh, unto itself, and and so while that was a, I would consider it a very painful and non-linear and hard process to walk, and not probably something that everyone is cut out for or willing to do. You know, at the end of the day, I feel like I've come to a much more compassionate and nuanced understanding of the world than I would have had I not kind of had that as my fundamental underpinning. So it's like useful, even though I don't agree with it. Yeah. And I also feel like I, now that I am coming at it from this more nuanced perspective as an older person, I also recognize the value in a lot of the things that were taught to me through that system, right? It's like, I'm like, well, the system, if I just take it as a coherent whole, is flawed. You know, it's like as a young person I'm like, well, if, if it's flawed I cast it out altogether. Like get this out of my face, you know. But as as an older person I'm like, well, you know, the the description of love in the in the Bible is pretty cool. You know, it's like love is patient, love is kind, love is all these different things, right? Or, you know, some of the concepts that Jesus taught, I think are really powerful. Ultimately it's like compassion and love and forgiveness and all these different things that are really powerful human concepts that are, you know, baked into that system and they're not default. Right. And and I think that's something else I realized that after stepping away, right. It's like humans don't just like have these concepts floating around in their head when they're born, they're kind of taught to us. And some other systems of thought don't have those concepts at all. It's like in North Korea, things are so utterly brutal And just the concept of love between individuals and between an individual and the universe doesn't exist, right? So it's like just that as a concept. I'm like, all right, I gained a lot of personal value from those fundamental concepts that are baked into that religious system. So I I probably got a little bit away from your original question, and I think I might have even forgotten what it was. But you know, I think it was the, what what were those things that I identified as incoherent?
1: Yeah, that was the question. Yeah, um, I was just curious to hear more specifically. Yeah, that was great. Thanks for sharing that.
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah, so to circle back on on the curiosity bit is for me the conflict between religion and education was I wanted to learn. Everything that I could about everything. And religion did not create an environment where that was okay. And so, as a curious mind, there was this conflict between religion and education. And I I call education this, it wasn't just school, it was me trying to figure out what the world was comprised of, what was right and wrong, what, you know, all the fundamental underpinnings of everything. So, for, I felt like for me, in order to become an educated person, I had to reject religion. And that's why I don't call myself religious at this point in my life, but I consider myself spiritual because I definitely have what I consider to be spiritual experiences and connection with the universal divine, whatever you want to call it. But I don't have language associated with a religion that I use to describe that experience even though I think a lot of religious people are having very similar experiences they're just calling it something different using different terminology because they probably have different life experiences that led them to be more or less comfortable with certain terms
1: yeah totally like I think for me those experiences happened early within the structure of Christianity and so like, there was something back to that personal experience part of the of the tricycle that I was talking about. That there was something in that that I, like I couldn't let go of, and that I really deeply trusted on an intellectual, but also on an intuitive level, um, even in my body, if you will. And so I think having those happen inside that container, when it was time for me to maybe deconstruct some of that container, it was like, okay, I want to take these parts away but I still want the thing to be coherent, but I'm going to have to do some really, 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 really hard work to make sense of the surface level contradiction of science and Christianity. And then you get down deeper and there's even more layers of contradiction there. And so that was, that was like a 10, a 10 year journey for me, like making sense of those and how do I live in the world while trying to sort kind of all of that stuff out. And, um, I kind of relate to what you were saying earlier about like having the structure. And so like I rebelled against the thing that was handed to me or like, I, I, that's not even like, that's how I would say it to my mom. <laughs> 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 that's not the language I would use, but like from like an, in, from like an insider perspective, like that's what it would look like to someone was that like, Oh, you were rebelling against God or what you know, whatever, like sure. the existential language they would, <laughs> they would, they would choose to use. And so I think for me, that was like almost testing out what works for me and what doesn't work for me. And I think for me, and it sounds like maybe in your experience too, like that was a really valuable thing is like, hey, I'm going to try on this size shirt and this color and see how it feels. And I'm going to try it on and then I'm going to go try on another one. And then like, I'm going to build, I'm going to build my wardrobe for that. And some of it may, you know, match the style of like, I don't know anything about fashion, so I can't make a metaphor here, but...
0: (laughs) it's, uh, it's Metro, you know, I don't know. I'm not a fashion guy either, but
1: <laughs> um, yeah. So like, you know, and then, and then you build your wardrobe, which is like, so to speak, like your orthodoxy and orthopraxy. I was taught this system of like, for, for, you know, 18, 20 years, gets all the right belief. And then I was like, I got to fucking practice. And so I like started to practice and figure out the interplay of those. And like, there was a whole thing around science. Cause like I had some friends who went to like, christian universities and then like these guys who were like phds in biology were like writing books about like biology that wasn't like w- right in lockstep with the fundamentalist perspective and so like there was controversy and like i was you know mm. prox- somewhat proximate to that and so like reading their books and was like really interested in the controversy and like that was a, that was a really good process for me to go through i'm glad i went through that and so yeah, just, just trying those things on. But I think back to like those early experiences happening inside the container, having that thing happen inside the container was was is what has led me to the point where I'm at now. And so, yeah, but it doesn't have to be one size fits all. It can be, you know, we probably have way more in common than what somebody on paper might say we have in common. So
0: Oh, absolutely. I think everyone
1: does. Yeah.
0: I mean, and, and that's one of the things that I want to try to achieve with these co- types of conversations is, is highlight that because we live in such a divided world, but we're just, we're all people and we're all trying to figure it out and we're all wrong in some ways. And we probably have really good insights and others. We have a, things that we can learn from other people's perspectives. And it's really important, I think, to investigate perspectives that are different than your own and try to actually understand it. Because there's something to learn there, 100%. Even if you don't fundamentally agree with that person at the end of the day, by trying to understand somebody else's perspective, you're going to learn something. Yep. And you're probably going to become more compassionate. And I think that's another thing that we're lacking just in general. We talk about (laughs) pseudo-compassion a lot, but it's not actually the practice of compassion. It's kind of, it's interesting because you're talking about Practice versus right thought versus then right practice. And it seems like right thought is very problematic in a lot of ways, regardless of what your belief system is. And in our postmodern world where we're hyper focused on identity politics in a lot of different ways, it seems like you have the situation where it's actually antithetical to compassion, even though that's what it's preaching. And I think, you know, Christianity and its right practice form can be very much that way also right it's like we're preaching compassion we're preaching love but in practice that's not actually what's being executed in the world and so it it seems like any type of system can have that as its character it's like oh this is what we stand for we stand for compassion we stand for the rights of all people so we're going to associate with the the right thought of hyper liberalism and we're going to then alienate anyone that doesn't think exactly like we think. And we're actually going to do aggressive, non-loving, non-accepting things to those people and still have it in our heads that we're somehow compassionate. And you know, you can have that on from any perspective, but it's just, it's interesting to sort of observe how two different very parallel, um, Worldviews can be preaching something while not actually practicing it. Where it seems to me like the the mystic perspective, kind of like what you were describing before, is the is the perspective of practicing a life that is centered around certain types of concepts and having that be kind of the core. Versus my ideas are right and yours are wrong. It's like I'm trying to practice compassion i'm trying to practice mindfulness i'm trying to practice whatever it is that you in your religious system or spiritual system think is valuable but by practicing it all the time you're bettering yourself and you're bettering the world around you versus the concept of by you know having a belief i am therefore exuding it in the world cuz to me that's where a lot of people or a lot of systems kind of get it wrong it's like, you can, it's like, I can have the concept in my head that science is awesome and not be a scientist <laughs> and, you know, walk around feeling like I'm a scientist because I have a cell phone in my pocket, but understand nothing about science and can also be the super religious person that is like compassion and love, you know, Jesus and not actually be compassionate or loving in their lives. And, So it seems like there's juxtaposition between those things, I guess.
1: Yeah, your your identity, I think. Like how I would say it's your identity is not your ideas. And like people get so attached to like my identity is my ideas. And if that's my identity, if my identity is my ideas, then I must have the right ideas. Otherwise, I have a bad identity. Hmm. And so when we get on that train, then it's like, well, I have the right belief system A and anybody who doesn't have it is in category B and therefore it's my job to prove that I have the right identity by showing that they have the wrong identity. But their wrong identity is their wrong ideas. So the my ideas are always in conflict with anyone else's ideas who are different than mine because my identity is my ideas, which is actually an insecure form of identity. Mm. And so... Our sense of identity is not actually our ideas. They're co-mingled, kind of, but like at the fundamental level, they're not the same. Nor are they mutually exclusive, but ideas change. So does identity. right? Yeah. And I think when we live enough life, we see that. And when you've lived enough life to see that own contradiction in yourself, then you can have more compassion for where someone else is is at because when we have idea a and we think that's the right idea a and we're trying to convince someone else, the idea B is wrong and that's the game that we're playing. We only become the same thing that we hate in idea B. Right. And often, and most of the time we become a worse version of that. That's more hidden in shadow and more complex and also therefore like more fucked up. <laughs> Right. So
0: that's a really interesting point. Uh, I think you said it extremely eloquently. This, when you approach it in that way, you become the worst version of the thing that you hate. And I, I think we see that everywhere. I think that we see that in modern society. You know, it's, I, I think you see it in this whole concept of fighting against racism and you end up with racism as the result which is a weird outcome. You're like, how does that happen? And the, but it's, it's buried in this concept that that's they're
1: another podcast, man. Like <laughs> that's a all yeah, podcast, <laughs> a
0: totally different podcast. But yeah, I mean, but I, I think these are still religious systems. You, you have a belief that is so rigid and your identity is associated with that belief to such a strong degree that in order to maintain your sense of self, you have to try to negate any perspective that is different than your own. Where an identity that is more associated with growth or experience or right practice, if you wanna call it that, and in the terminology that you used, it seems a lot more robust and a lot more flexible and able to interact with conflicting worldviews without feeling like everything's coming, crashing down around you. And so you're able to probably co-mingle with other humans and come to more of a nuanced understanding of how to interact with people that aren't exactly like you because turns out nobody's exactly like you. So yeah, right. good skill set. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah I, I think another way of like saying that with ideas A and ideas B is that we, that's why I like one of the first things I said tonight was... Like, I believe that there's shadow and light in everything. And then we need to acknowledge both of those. And because if we only acknowledge the light in our perspective or our view or in ourselves, then the shadow starts doing some weird things and it goes to work and we're not even aware of it. And so by starting off, by having that be your initial posture, is that like, yeah, I think there's a lot of good. And like, let's acknowledge like the things that are like maybe not perfect or figured out in this perspective or this idea or like just me and myself. That posture of humility can just create a much more fertile soil for dialogue, for human interaction, for human connection, and for love and compassion and whole making to to flourish between between people.
0: Yeah, couldn't agree more. And we're like two and a half hours in, and I think that was a pretty eloquent thing that you just said, so it might be a good place to, to cut it off, but I would like to give you just the opportunity to leave the conversation with anything that you'd like to say. I mean, if there is, if you want to plug anything that you've got going on in your life, if there's ideas that you want to share, I I like to kind of give an open platform. If not, it's cool. We we can, uh, we can uh, clink glasses and, and uh, close it up.
1: Well, the least illustrious guest of all time has no ideas to share. So (laughs)
0: Definitely not the least illustrious, but uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, it was really a pleasure, and I hope we, we get to have more conversations like this, and, and we'll we'll share them. So Thanks for having me. Yeah, all right. And with that, Alex has left the building, and that was a really cool conversation. Uh, I think we covered a lot of interesting territory. Alex is a really unique thinker, and I, I appreciate his time. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you enjoyed the show, please like, subscribe, give us a share to any of your friends and family that you think might like the show. All that stuff really goes a long way here in the early stages of the podcast and really appreciate your guys' support. Also, feel free to reach out to me. I would love to hear your thoughts on any of the material that we cover and look forward to interacting with you guys over and out.